Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with E. Wesley Ely, MD, FCCM. Dr. Ely is a professor of medicine and critical care at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, as well as the Tennessee Valley Veterans Administration Hospital, also in Nashville. He is here to discuss the evolution of the ABCDE bundle and the Society's ICU Liberation Initiative, which aims to help practitioners become more familiar with the PAD, or Pain, Agitation, and Delirium Guidelines and Assessment Tools. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Ely. Thank you, Michael. It's my privilege. Please call me Wes. All right. Thank you, Wes. So I'm sure the audience is quite familiar with a lot of your work, and certainly you and your team at Vanderbilt has been really on the leading edge of the pain, agitation, and delirium assessment guidelines and talking some more here at Congress. I should mention that we are recording at the 44th Annual Congress in Phoenix, Arizona. Maybe we can take a step back because, you know, I think sometimes people get confused by different even very what seems like simple terminology, but the idea of a bundle or a protocol, how would you define those as it relates to ICU care, and what is the value that you see in having a bundle and linking various aspects of care together? Sure, Michael, and you know, different groups of people have a lot of pushback, for example, maybe on the idea of a protocol. It's cookbook medicine. Uh, you're going to make me do things that I wouldn't normally do in the right in, the, in a different order that I might do them. They get a little testy about this stuff. And I think if we all just put our minds back onto what we came to do here, which is to serve people, the, the reason I think that the data support a protocol or a bundled approach in this circumstance is that we will ultimately do a better job at preservation of human dignity and self-worth if we are more consistent in the way that we approach the elements of suffering of our patients. And no doubt, in this case, the patients are suffering, regardless of how well we handle the ventilator or how well we take care of their sepsis, they are suffering from pain, agitation, and anxiety, and delirium, which are the three things the guidelines were created to serve. But just because we're aware that they're suffering from them doesn't mean we do a good job of assessing for those elements of suffering and then changing our management to take care of those elements of suffering. So the idea behind the bundle is for us to be more consistent and more effective and successful at reducing that to the end game of preservation of human dignity and self-worth, the idea behind it. Now, we can get into the specifics, but I just wanted to frame our, our vision, our lens on the patient. I think that's an appropriate segue, actually. You know, it's it's so wonderful to hear you talk about the what really is the goal. And I've recently heard that there's potentially another letter being added to the ABCDE bundle, and it seems to be right in line with the philosophy that you're promoting as you were speaking now. And so that's the F. And what is, what is the F about? Yeah, the F is about family engagement and autonomy. I was at a grand round, doing grand rounds recently, and somebody said, you know, your website has a lot of information. There's an ICU liberation website that the SCCM has. And we couple that one with our ICU delirium website, which is ours out of the Vanderbilt and the VA in Nashville. And they liked the fact that the website has medical professional portals and also a family portal, a, fa- a patient and family portal. And so now when we're moving forward with this ICU liberation program, which you and I will get into in a minute, we decided that we would make certain that the family were incorporated, not just in the way of, oh, it's kind, it's polite to include the family, but actually in a way that 
helps us become better at what we do. In other words, the family knew what the program was. They knew that we were trying to reduce over-sedation and to reduce prolonged mechanical ventilation and to get our patients mobilized and out of the bed. If they knew that, then they would actually keep us honest, so to speak. Like, hey, why didn't you measure delirium in my mom today? Why didn't you get my dad out of the bed this morning? So we want them to be part of the spark for us to be more consistent, more effective at doing what I said earlier. Mm -hmm. So that's why they're going to be the F piece of this. Yeah, it's incredibly invaluable information that you sometimes get from family members on rounds, as well as their participation and advocacy for the patient in terms of the patient care. And you know, we might just review for the listener, they might not know what the ABCDEs were. Yes. So I want to clear that up too. You know, I think that the SCCM guideline committee that created the PAD guidelines, and I did not come up with this idea, but I think others on our committee did, which was excellent, to convert it from a focus on the therapy, the intervention, which was sedation and analgesia, over to the patient's symptoms, pain, agitation, delirium. So this can become word salad if you're not careful. So PAD are the name of the guidelines because those are the things that our patients are suffering from. The tools we use, imagine kind of a table with three columns. So the first column is PAD, the symptoms. The middle column are the tools we use to monitor those symptoms, the CPOT for pain, the SAS and the RAS for agitation, and the ICU delirium screening checklist and the CAM ICU for delirium. So those are the middle column. That's a bunch of letters as well. The third column is, well, how do you implement the tools to monitor the symptoms? And that is with assessment for pain as the A. B, both spontaneous awakening trials and spontaneous breathing trials. C, choice of drug. D, delirium monitoring and management and E, early mobility. So all of those five letters, the A, B, C, D, E's, those are were created because they were a constellation of New England Journal, JAMA, and Lancet papers, very evidence-based, all put together into this sticky bundle. And now if we add F onto it, and I don't want to keep going with the whole alphabet, by the way. I mean, I don't want us to get to Z. There's a certain upper limit of how sticky these things can be. So we're going to make sure that these steps, the assessment and management of pain, the awakening and breathing trials, the choice of drugs, the delirium and the early mobility are done together on a routine daily basis at these ICUs that are going to take place with our ICU Liberation Collaborative, and that the family will be a part of that as the F to be engaged, to be aware of what we're doing, to keep us, as I said, honest about it, and to help us become more consistent with it. That's the idea behind this bundle. Mm-hmm. Great. Well said. Can you take a step back and talk about the ICU or maybe take a step forward in the ICU Liberation Initiative and what are the, the goals and the, the, the plans on the horizon? So the history behind that is that the SCCM said, well, you know, we had the surviving sepsis campaign and we had a surviving sepsis uh, rollout and, th- and this rolled out the guidelines and that was very effective and successful internationally. What are we going to do for the PAD? So they, they, created an ICU, they created a committee to look over this, and that committee came up with this term, ICU liberation. We're trying to liberate the patient from the confines of mechanical ventilation and sedation and, and physical restraints, too, so physical and chemical restraints. And that committee then said, well, how can we bring this forward? What we can do is we can have typical CME courses, but we can do better than that. We can create a collaborative program where we divide the country into three regions, like a Western collaborative, uh, maybe a Northeast slash Midwest collaborative, and a Southeast collaborative. And we're going to start meetings, 
housed at the UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, at University of Chicago, and at Emory are going to be the three host sites of these meetings. We're going to allow ICUs to apply, be a part of the IC Liberation Collaborative. They will have to have certain criteria. They can't come as individuals. They have to have a team. This is very interprofessional. They have to have buy-in from their CEOs and the powers that be in their hospitals to say, we're going to back you. We want this. We want our hospital to do the ABCDEFs. We're going to have a data collection person. If they can create that team and have that sort of backing, they can be one of the ICUs that takes part in this ICU liberation program. And then we'll have an ongoing iterative process of implementation using appropriate implementation science uh, parameters. And then we're going to monitor what happens. And my mentor always told me, Wes, if you don't write it up, it never happened. So we're going to track this, analyze the data, and we're going to publish on what happened here with the ICU liberation collaborative, which is the way we view of the SECM bringing to life the PAD guidelines. And, and so for our listeners who might be interested in getting involved, this is for all sorts of hospitals, academic community, uh, academic affiliates? Sure. It is for all sorts of hospitals. And in fact, it's especially for the types of hospitals that think that they've been not able to do what they wanted to do yet. Like some hospitals really want to make quality improvement programs happen, but maybe they didn't think that they had the resources of the right team. Well, this might be the spark to help them to build the team and to garner the resources. When the SDCM puts out the application packet, they'll be able to see what is going to be expected of me, of us, to be a part of this. I need to go build that part because I've got parts A and B, but I don't have part C, for example, or something. Mm -hmm. And so we want hospitals that feel like that they have, they're, they're right about to be on the learning curve on the steep uphill climb of improvement. If hospitals already have done all the improvement work and they've already adopted the ABCDEs, for example, and such, and they've really achieved you know, above 80% clinical compliance and they've sustained that, they probably won't be a part of this because they're essentially already ahead of that mm-hmm. learning curve. So that's who we're trying to find. Yeah. And maybe you can talk a little bit further about implementation science and how it informs recommendations. So you know, many of us, I think, perhaps have a ABCD bundle. And we've put it on paper. Yeah. You know, we have written it down. At least. Sure. But how do you, you know, it seems as though it's a culture change or it's certainly a, a different way of practicing in the ICU than we did 10, 15 years ago. Sure. How, how do you, how, how do we read through that process? Well, Michael, that's a really important part of this. I read a line last week that I'm sure most of the listeners have heard, culture eats strategy for lunch. <laughs> You know, you can come up with all the strategizing you want, but if the culture won't allow it to happen, it's a it's a game off. You know, it's a your downtime. So what we know about this is, and we've done work already with the IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We've done it with large hospital systems that I don't need to mention them, but multiple large American hospital systems, and there have been varying degrees of success with the change and the adoption of these different elements of care. The consistent part of the weakness of the success of of, of the whole that we know is the culture change piece. These are human beings, after all, at the end of the day, that are trying to make a change in their practice pattern. We're there to serve humans, but humans are the ones doing the service as well. And so if they are stuck in their old way of doing things, their old way of thinking, and this is as basic as how you round. If your rounds are top-down, and it's, you know, the the in in an academic center, for example, if it's the intern presenting to the attending and the fellow and them talking amongst themselves. And the, and the nurse and the pharmacist and the other interdis- interprofessional people are there, but they're not incorporated into the conversation. You can't make this thing work. It won't happen. For example, there are two things that 
I know will make a team have a higher chance of success in this circumstance. And one of them is allowing the chart to adapt so that these parameters are written down and or typed in and part of the permanent medical record, for example, RAS target and a RAS actual. You can't just have the RAS actual. You can't have just the sedation scale written down. You have to complement that and juxtapose it to a target because only when you look at the target and the actual do you see that there might be a discrepancy. If there's no target written down, you, know, you don't automatically have it in your face that there's a discrepancy. So charting is one thing. And the other one is to, I say it, have the talk. Now I've got three daughters, and at some point I had to have the talk with my daughter. Well, this is a different talk. It's a talk that, that on rounds has to occur where the interprofessional group has to have the conversation out loud on rounds from the nurse to the pharmacist to the doctor back to the social worker. And these people have to have the conversation. What are our goals for Ms. Smith today? In terms of dignity and preservation of self-worth, are we going to allow her to be restrained in the bed chemically or physically on the ventilator and not mobilized, or are we going to get her out of the bed so that our ultimate goal is her walking out of the hospital and going home, if that's feasible for that patient? And once there's that interprofessional conversation going on, then you have to say, well, how are we going to make it happen? Well, you can't mobilize a sedated patient. So now you're backed up to, well, then we got to lighten the sedation. And it keeps going back like that until you achieve success. But none of it will occur if the culture itself doesn't change. And that's the implementation science piece of this that the ICU Liberation Program is going to harness. That's great. Can we maybe even get a little bit more granular? What would an ideal rounds look like in the ICU? If you could create it exactly how you wanted it to happen, what would that look like? Well, several things that, that you and I don't see probably right now happen. First of all, on rounds right now across the country and world, I think that all too often, even the well-intentioned interdisciplinary, interprofessional rounds have a large group of people in a circle outside of a room with many heads buried in a computer, right? You can vision this. Yep. And I think that ideal rounds would put that patient back at the center such that maybe we are rounding at the bedside and not instead of out, outside the bedside. Now, I know that there are things like, you know, infectious control mm -hmm. policies and stuff that, that hamper this right. from time to time and bed to bed even. But in general, the first thing I, I do now is I make sure that we get ourselves around that bed with that patient and so put the patient at the center of the conversation. The second thing that happens, though, is that we start our rounds every day. All of our conversations start with the nurse presenting instead of the doctors. The nurse presents it, and the nurse presents what we call the brain roadmap. The nurse starts with not temperature and heart rate and blood pressure, not that those things are important, but those things will never not be talked about. We always talk about the temperature and the heart rate and the blood pressure. But what gets lost is what's presented at the end usually, so we moved it up to the front. We call it the brain roadmap. The nurse presents the target RAS, the actual RAS, in our case, the CAM ICU, but whatever delirium instrument you're using, and then what drugs they're on that are controlling how deep or light their sedation is and what's contributing to their... Uh, their cognitive status. So we start with that brain. If you just were think about what you were taught in med school, the physical exam goes head to toe. We start at the top. So are we make our presentation start at the top with the head, and we do that brain roadmap, and then we proceed through the rest. And then after the nurse presents that, then we move to the house staff or physician to have a conversation, and we always incorporate the family. So now that the family is a piece of this, and the ABCDEFs have that family autonomy, family incorporation, we make sure that at every bedside, on every patient, if there's family present and we've invited them to be a part of it, that we then turn to the family and say a 30-second to one minute or even up to two minutes lay summary of what just went on and allow them to ask some questions. 
If that family then wants to have a larger conversation, then we can set up a family conference. But we allow them to ask a couple of minutes worth of questions. And it's amazing how much more efficient this is in terms of I used to spend all day long in these family conferences. But once we started incorporating family into these conversations, they actually become incredibly satisfied with how much information they've gotten by being present for all of that. So I know that different hospitals, different listeners here have already started this, and I'm not saying this is anything that none of you have thought of, but you asked me what ideal rounds are, and I think that's a piece of it. And then the last piece of this, Michael, that I'll say is that we're tracking, and part of that presentation in the things that are said are, how have we done with our ABCDEs today? You know, have we done assessment for pain and where is the patient? Have we done an SAT and an SBT? What has been our choice of drugs? How is the patient doing with delirium and early mobility? And then on the team, you've got the physical therapist or the nurse or whoever is going to be in charge of that patient's mobilization. It certainly does not have to be a physical therapist. We love the physical therapist to be involved, but hospitals sometimes say, we don't have an ICU physical therapist. That doesn't mean you can't take on the E of this round. So that's kind of how we view this to happen. Mm -hmm. Great. And maybe you can speak to how did folks sell this to their institution? What are the outcomes that have been demonstrated through ABCDE? And additionally, what outcomes do we suspect might be improved as well? Sure. Well, two parts to the answer. The first part is that with that to sell it to others in your institution, I agree that they ought to be told that there are payoffs to doing this that if you invest the time and energy to change your culture, that there will be tangible payoffs that we will see on the back end. And the first thing, of course, to remember is what's the most important payoff? Back to human dignity and self-worth. Who is the most at risk in the hospital to be in an undignified situation? It's our ICU patients. What's undignified? Well, it's very hard on people when they are no longer independent, when they have to depend on other people to move, to get to a shower, to you know have these basic elements of their life done for them. So what could be more liberating than IC liberation? Getting them off the ventilator earlier, off the station earlier, mobilized earlier, so that when they get out of the ICU, we have helped them in some way to survive their critical illness. They are then go back to a life of independence. So that's the most important payoff, but people want more than that. So I can tell you that there are at least between five and 10 excellent quality improvement papers already out, published, that have shown reductions in delirium duration, improvements in ICU length of stay, mechanical ventilation. And and these are very striking studies. For example, one by Michelle Ballas of the ABCDEs showed a 50% overall reduction in delirium, a doubling of the mobility, and a trend towards even mortality with a p-value of 0.06. There have been also studies, I won't name all of them here, so I'm, I'm at risk now to get somebody upset with me for leaving their <laughs> study out, but Biren Kamdar and Dale Needham and, and their team from Hopkins had a sleep protocol and reduced benzodiazepine use and improved delirium duration dramatically. Miriam Trigiari did an implementation of the ABCs and reduced benzo use and improved delirium rates as well. We now have a paper by Mike Klompas in the Blue Journal that's uh, EPUB ahead of print right now from the CDC collaborative that he did called Wake Up and Breathe. Same exact concept as this bundle here where they had dramatic clinical improvements that you'll be reading. You can find that online right now, Mike Klompas, his paper. And I know uh, one was just published by the IHI, another one by Marianne Daly from California. So these things are stacking up now of people who said, okay, I get it. The New England Journal JAMA and Lancet papers were put together into a bundled format. Even for people who don't like, quote, cookbook medicine, 
they have to realize that if you're not going to use this bundle, find some other bundle, some other way to keep yourself consistent and effective at implementing these types of culture changes to liberate your patients so they can have that sort of preservation of dignity. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I don't know if there's any other thoughts that you have that you wanted to share with the audience. I'll just say I think that a story of real humans goes a long way. So find testimonials on either the ICU Delirium website, find videos that we have there, or those that are going to be available through the ICU Liberation website. Go look at those things just for a few minutes. Read a few of them where people are saying that that they couldn't go back to work, that their family didn't believe in them, that they almost decided to commit suicide because they had not been prepared by the ICU team for their long-term cognitive impairment and physical disabilities. We in medicine have chosen this vocation and we have to do better for these people. So I think it's no longer, a we, don't, we no longer have the luxury of saying, I'm going to stay the way I have been because it did me well for 10 to 20 years. We were tricking ourselves. We know better now, if you look at our data from the New England Journal paper, from the Brain ICU study, that even young people, 30 and 40 years old, are leaving with cognitive impairment that looks like Alzheimer's disease, and, and that's unacceptable. So all of these things together, as we move forward in the next 10 to 20 years, Hopefully, we can figure out ways to help prevent some of that disability. Great. So, you've, again, you've certainly been a leader in that initiative. So, folks, if they want to get involved, should look at the SECM website or the ICU Liberation website. And yes, there'll be in, in mid spring or so. There will be some application packets put out by the SECM. Lori Harmon is in charge of this program, the ICU Liberation program for the SECM, and they will have some online tutorials about how to apply for this, and there's going to be a selection process to pick the ICUs. But even if you're not ready to go now and or don't get accepted to this program because you, there's a limit to the number of ICUs that can take part in this, there's going to be an open blog on the ICU Liberation website that will allow everybody to keep learning from this program. And I should just mention one more thing, which is that SECM is going to launch a program called Thrive. Thrive is going to pay attention to what I call the back end of the ICU. What we've been talking about during this podcast is the front end of the ICU. It's all of the uh, phase one of illness and ICU stay. But what about that phase two of the ICU illness, that back end when they leave and they have to suffer through PICS or post-intensive care syndrome? That's what Thrive is going to be. So the SECM is really taking a leadership role here in connecting the front and the back end of critical care, and it's going to be done through the ICU Liberation and Thrive programs, which will be synthesized. Great. Certainly, uh, looking at the ICU Liberation website, there's a lot of valuable tools for those who haven't checked it out. I think it's wonderful what our society is is doing to, to help patients. But it's that that website's not where it needs to be. We know that it's going to get a lot more alive, so to speak, over the upcoming three or four months. Mm-hmm. Great. We look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. This concludes another edition of the I Critical Care Podcast. For the I Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCP, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved.
Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.